Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Josh. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. This week, I'm joined by my co-host, Josh. How are you, Josh? I'm doing pretty well, Nicole. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Yeah? What do you think of the weather these days? The weather is very strange. It was awful on the weekend, but now it's looking awful in a different way. It's just very, very warm. I hope it didn't get in the way of your Blues Fest activities. It didn't, but I spent most of the weekend inside, and I watched... All of Marco Polo season two. You know, that sounds delightful. Yeah, it's a great show. It's very international as yeah. the show goes. Yeah, for sure. Lots of uh, policy. Uh, Medieval international affairs. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All about the power. In this week's episode, we dive into the global refugee crisis of the 21st century. Over the past several years, the mass influx of Syrian and Iraqi refugees in countries around the world has brought the issue of the global refugee crisis to the forefront of political debates particularly in North America and Europe, which had previously been insulated from the harsh realities facing these refugees. While the plight of Syrian and Iraqi refugees has received significant media attention, it's merely a symptom of a much larger issue and is by no means the only refugee crisis facing the international community today. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, estimates that a record-breaking 65.3 million people have been forcibly displaced from their homes. Among them are 21.3 million refugees, with over 50% of these refugees coming from Somalia, Afghanistan, and Syria. This week's episode will analyze the closure of the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya, a safe haven for predominantly Somali refugees, and will draw out the broader issues and policy implications from this case. Located in eastern Kenya, the Dadaab refugee camp is the largest in the world. It is estimated that there are 330,000 people living there. Most are Somali refugees. To give a bit more of an idea of the scale, if the camp were a city, it would be the third largest in Kenya after Nairobi and Mombasa. The camp first opened in 1991 when Somali refugees, fleeing the civil war in their country, crossed over the border and into Kenya. Over time, the camp grew in size, in part due to continued unrest in Somalia and also as a result of natural disasters in the region. The camp was originally intended to host only 90,000 people. Now remember, it hosts 330,000 people. That means that Dadaab now hosts more than three and a half times the number it is meant to. The camp is overseen by the UNHCR, which has relied heavily on foreign donations to keep it functioning. Given the camp's immense size and longevity, it has become a de facto city with markets, businesses, and educational facilities. Over the years, the UNHCR has worked with both Kenya and Somalia to repatriate some of the people living in Dadaab. Due to security and humanitarian concerns and the logistical issues of repatriating so many people, the process has been slow. In May of this year, the Kenyan government announced its intentions to close the Dadaab refugee camp and others in the area within the year. The Kenyan government alleges that the camps are hotbeds for Islamic extremism and even went so far as to link the April 2015 terrorist attacks at Garissa University in Kenya, which killed 147 people, to the Dadaab camp. Kenya has also criticized the international community for not doing enough to help manage the influx of refugees. 
we anticipate that the international community will fulfill its promises to the federal government of Somalia in assistance to help them receive their citizens. It is also our belief that the world would wake up to the reality and the disaster that the Horn of Africa portends, not just being a threat to the Horn of Africa itself, to Somalia, and to the future of humanity. That was Deputy President of Kenya, William Ruto, speaking at the World Humanitarian Summit in Turkey this past May. What's interesting, Josh, is that the Kenyan government has threatened to close the camp before, though they've never followed through. This time, the international community seems to be taking the threat seriously. Now, Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations, recently visited Kenya to plead with the government not to close down the camps, but his efforts have so far been unsuccessful. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Hunter McGill, an experienced international development practitioner and professor at Norman Patterson School of International Affairs here at Carleton. Professor McGill formerly worked for the Canadian International Development Agency, or CEDA, where he served as director of bilateral programs for a number of countries, including Zimbabwe and Zambia, and director general for humanitarian aid and peacebuilding. He has also worked for the Organization for Economic and Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. His experience lies in humanitarian aid policy and aid effectiveness. Thank you, Professor McGill, for joining us today. Welcome, Professor. You're very welcome. So we'll start our discussion by focusing specifically on the situation in the Dadaab refugee camp, and then we'll move on to the broader issues that this highlights with existing refugee and humanitarian policy. So perhaps the first question that comes to mind, given that the Kenyan government has tried to shut down the camps before, is why now? Why are they shutting it down now? They're probably a blend of... Uh, reasons associated directly with the, the sheer size and the longevity of Dadaab camp, which is one of a number of, of refugee camps in Kenya. Don't forget also that there are many people uh, who qualify as refugees uh, in Kenya who are in fact not living in camps, who live in the major uh, urban centers like Mombasa, like Nairobi. So Kenya is carrying uh, the weight of a very, very large number of refugees. For the people who live in the organized camps, the camps that are run by UNHCR, uh, there, are, there is a substantial level of international assistance going uh, to uh, those camps uh, through the United Nations system. But it's never enough. Uh, consistently, uh, uh, in recent years, the shortfall uh, of funds available uh, compared with the requested amounts by UNHCR and other organizations like UNICEF, the World Food Program, has consistently undershot needs by about 40, 45%, which is a pretty significant number when you're looking at 350, who knows, maybe even 400,000 people mm -hmm. at Dadaab, at Kakuma, which is another big camp which has many Sudanese and others uh, in the northeast, uh, northwestern part of Kenya. So the Kenyan authorities have a real problem on their hands in that respect uh, because these people, uh, these refugees, uh, once they're given the status of refugees, um, are entitled to certain levels of protection, of support. Um, and uh, Kenya is a developing country. It has you know, needy populations of its own. So you've got that pressure. There is the not 
insignificant factor of the very porous border border between Kenya and Somalia. The fact that uh, Al-Shabaab, which is the uh, the insurgent group, the, the um, very violent uh, uh, fundamentalist group in Somalia, moves across the border with what appears to be relative ease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that does represent a security threat to, to Kenya. Although Kenya has a very robust uh, uh, military presence in the northeast, uh, it also has military forces in Somalia itself. And uh, so uh, you have these kinds of factors. Security is a factor. And the third the third factor, to be very candid about it, is that um, next year's election year in Kenya. And President uh, uh, Uru Kenyatta, uh, Mr. Rutu, the vice president, and that whole government, uh, of course, are going to be looking for re-election. And as we see in uh, other contexts, uh, politicians uh, tend to um, play to the home audience and to say, you know, I'm the one who's going to take care of you. I'm the one who's going to protect you. And one can't discount that as a factor. But you're quite right. Uh, the Kenyan authorities in the past have uh, uh, threatened, uh, made plans to close the camps. And uh, there have been uh, solutions found, uh, compromise, uh, the United Nations. You mentioned the Secretary General of the United Nations uh, uh, appealing to the Kenyan authorities to perhaps moderate or change their position. We'll have to see. But um, it, uh, it it does represent a real a real threat. Yeah, one can make parallels with, you know, having that many people in Canada, um, you know, just in and having to be responsible for them. We make a big deal about having accepted 26,000 Syrian refugees. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what the Kenyans have been dealing with for decades. There are three generations of people who have been living in the Dab camp. Yeah. Try to imagine that there are families who have never, they are Somalis, and they have the right to Somali uh, uh, citizenship. They may well have proof of Somali citizenship, <laughs> if, if that's possible. Um, but, um, but they cannot go back to their home country as much as they want to because they would be under great threat. Yeah. That's what makes them refugees. Yeah, certainly. Well, it's a substantial population, 330,000 people. Mm-hmm. In that one camp? Yeah, in that one camp alone. So let's say, um, for the sake of this next question, that Kenya is successful in shutting down the camp. And so they're looking for the safest way to repatriate these refugees. What would that be? What are those kind of security concerns that Kenya and other neighboring nations need to take into account when repatriating these people and, and putting them back to their homeland, and is the Kenyan government's plan to repatriate these people legal according to the existing refugee conventions? If the people in the camp and other Somalis in other camps and in the urban areas of Kenya, if they have been recognized as refugees, you can't force them to go home. That's called refoulement, and it is in fact against the conventions on refugees and their various iterations. Um, because you would be putting them in danger. You would be putting them back into the situation uh, that they fled from, that made them refugees in the first place. They have fled because they have, have concerns about their uh, the, the threats to their lives because of their ethnicity, their religion, their gender in some cases, uh, their political beliefs, and so on. And so if you cannot guarantee, and if those individuals aren't themselves convinced 
that the conditions that made them refugees in the first place no longer exist in their home country. You can't force them to go home. So for sake of argument, if they were to force them to go home, what kind of uh, legal ramifications would Kenya be facing if mm-hmm. that were to happen? It's a good question. I'm not sure we've ever seen a situation uh, uh, of the kind of dimensions that we uh, we would face, uh, we would uh, observe in, in the case of Kenya uh, if that uh, threat to repatriate all these people came to pass. There isn't a great deal. I mean, how can you coerce a country uh, into not doing that sort of thing? You have to rely on moral suasion. You have to uh, make persuasive arguments as to why this would perhaps potentially be even more destabilizing for Kenya, sending these people home. Um, And perhaps also uh, uh, sweetening the deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a rather crude term, a rather crass term, but sweetening the deal for the Kenyan authorities and making it possible for uh, uh, increasing the level of international support to the organizations that are running Dadaab and the other camps in in the country uh, so that there is less uh, indirect uh, implicit uh, burden on on the, on Kenya itself. That could that could be a significant factor. We don't know. So actually, let's discuss burden sharing a little bit. So the Kenyan government has been has criticized the international community for not providing enough aid and for not accepting more Somali refugees. So in essence, for not sharing the burden. So what are the plausible alternatives to closing the Dadaab refugee camp? And do you think pouring more money into the camp will ultimately solve the problem? No, it won't ultimately solve the problem at all. What will ultimately solve the problem is peace, stability, and security in Somalia. Certainly. People live in those camps in the hope, even after two or three generations, that they will eventually be able to go home. Yeah. Somalia is home to them. They, uh, uh, it's why uh, they perhaps have not opted, if there were offers, made to them to to leave Kenya and to go to a country of final refuge. Um, People don't become refugees out of choice. They become refugees out of desperation. The people who live in these camps and refugees uh, worldwide are some of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people anywhere. Uh, It's not the kind of condition that you'd want to be in. And so uh, uh, we really got to look very carefully at how a diplomatic and political solution can be found to the current situation in Somalia and make it possible for the Somalis now living in Kenya uh, to return home, to resume their lives, to have decent livelihoods in in Somalia. Uh, And that's really where the effort should go. But, of course, uh, without delving into the political economy of of Somalia, it's in in essence been a failed state for, uh, what, Mm -hmm. 30 years. Uh, And uh, and the prospects of of there being a a political solution in the near term are are pretty remote, if if they exist at all. So playing off of that and the the current situation with Somalia and the state of their nation, what are the potential ramifications then of taking a, a large group of a vulnerable population and bringing them back to a country with strains on their infrastructure among multiple other challenges? Mm-hmm. Could this lead to a potential other humanitarian crisis? Yes, it certainly would. It certainly would. These people have no uh, no livelihoods to return to. Uh, they, their homes, if they're relatively recent, arrivals in Kenya from from Somalia, their homes may no longer exist. And of course, for the 
for, for the families who have been in Kenya for several generations, who knows what has happened to their home villages. Uh, Somalia has been in a state of conflict uh, and in a state of crisis for, for decades. And um, the, the, uh, the, the warring parties have uh, used the destruction of villages and the persecution of, of minority groups and opposition groups, and particularly civilians, um, uh, as, as one of the weapons uh, in, their, in their combat. Uh, so who knows what these people would return to? And mm-hmm. as well, we can't forget that Eastern Africa right now, the Horn of Africa, is experiencing a very significant drought. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this is poss- possibly also a factor that uh, that influences the, or it raises the pressure on the Kenyan authorities too, because they're having to cope with drought conditions in much of their country, particularly the Northeast. So, you've got all of these different uh, factors coming together. It's it's well past the tipping point in that respect, and the the drought is is not the least of them, but it is a very significant factor. If these people have very little uh, to begin with, uh, if you're going to send them home or if you're going to persuade them to go home, whatever home is, uh, how are you going to help them, in fact, reestablish their lives, Mm -hmm. reestablish their livelihoods back in Somalia? Uh, There's very little uh, humanitarian infrastructure, very little developmental infrastructure in Somalia because of the conflict, because of the, of the 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 fighting that's been going on between between different tribes and the the depredations of Al Shabaab and things like that. So it's it's an extraordinarily complex situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Before we move along any further, let's just take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll extend this discussion into a larger international context with our guest, Hunter McGill. Policy Talks recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. We're back with our guest Hunter McGill and ready to dive back into our discussion. Now we're going to try to place this issue in a larger context. Mainly, or firstly, we're going to get to the heart of what it means to be a refugee camp. So, it seems that the intention of behind a refugee camp is for a temporary solution, a transition point for those fleeing persecution or natural disaster to find their bearings before finding an opportunity to move somewhere else or to start over. Now, Dadab, that's not really the case with Dadab, right? As you've said, there were three generations of people who have been born in this place. So mm-hmm. it's less of a refugee camp and kind of just a city without any freestanding buildings. Yeah. I mean, it's bigger than, I believe, Windsor, if it were, if it were a Canadian city, yeah. which is just mind-boggling. So is this a flaw in the concept of a refugee camp, that it has this potential to become very non-temporary? The idea behind refugee camps is that you are mobilizing resources to meet the immediate needs of the persons who arrive as refugees. They They will need shelter. 
Mm-hmm. They will need food. They will need water and sanitation facilities. Uh, they'll need health care. Many of them will be in acute need of health care uh, because of the deprivations that they've suffered in leaving their homes and traveling, in some cases, very, very considerable distances uh, on foot. Um, and uh, then also there is the hope, but it's, of course, because of the, the notion, that the, the, the fiction, if you will, that refugee camps are temporary, that there is, in some cases, there's a strong uh, argument to be made in favor of uh, education facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that usually tends to get rather far down the list because of the underfunding, the, 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 the significant gap between resources needed and resources provided in order to operate camps and meet the, the refugees' needs. So if you are dealing with a substantial number of people in the tens, if not the hundreds of thousands, <clears throat> logistically, one of the easier ways to do it, the most, the easiest way to do it is, in fact, to group people together in a camp. This is why in the Middle East you get these very large camps in Jordan. Uh, there were large camps in, uh, in parts of, of uh, Iraq. There are camps in Turkey. Um, there are fewer camps in Lebanon because the... Uh, Syrian, many of the Syrians who are leaving as refugees from their country um, have some form of connection uh, in Lebanon. And so they go into the cities and the towns and they are, uh, if you will, uh, relying on the not quite the kindness of strangers, but certainly of, refu- of relatives, of friends, uh, of acquaintances. Um, but that is uh, less the case. It's more, it's more often the case where you do get these very substantial camps, as, as we've been talking about in the case of Kenya. I should mention, we've referred to the, the, the multi-generational nature of, mm-hmm. of, of the camps in, in Kenya. We shouldn't forget that, in fact, there are Palestinian refugees who have been living in camps since 1948, 1949, and 1950 in the Middle East. And In fact, I read a story the other day about a camp that is not very far from Aleppo in Syria of Palestinians, and they are now doubly suffering, as it were, because they have now become... Uh, almost a pawn, uh, because they are in, a, in an area that is being hotly contested by the various combatants, uh, the government forces, uh, ISIL, um, the, the, the other militias, and so on and so forth. And there right in the middle is a, a, a Palestinian refugee camp, which has been there for over 50 years and uh, is, constitutes probably 30 or 40,000 people. So we have some of these cases where in the absence of a political solution, in the absence of you know, really concentrated diplomatic efforts, and the Palestinian case, of course, is the most intractable that we know, that you, you have these camps that just arise f- for very good reasons. They, they must exist. These people must be met. We have, as a global community, an obligation to meet their needs. They, they are very, very vulnerable. Um, but then there, the, the, it seems in some cases to be easier to find the resources. And it, the, we are talking hundreds of millions of dollars um, to, to keep these camps going around the world rather than really making the concentrated and sustained effort to find political and diplomatic solutions, which is really the, 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 the ultimate answer. So, so when these camps go from hopefully temporary to act seemingly permanent, what are the kind of challenges for both the refugee and the host state that they face when this becomes a reality, that it's not just a temporary solution, that it's a... Mm-hmm. 
unending kind of issue. Well, it, it, it leads to the kinds of problems that one is seeing with Dadaab. I mean, William Rutu in the, in the clip that was played at the start of the show um, is, is quite right. Uh, there, there are elements of the Somali insurgents, the al-Shabaab forces, who do infiltrate into the camps. They're able to do so because it's a huge uh, um, uh, unfenced uh, place. And uh, they do uh, hide within hide within the population, uh, and in fact may coerce the population into giving them a form of of concealment. And uh, uh, so that 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 is the kind of problem that occurs. Also, you get huge numbers of of people who are really deprived of the opportunity for for development. That's because it, it, in effect it is they're, they're sort of in this endless, almost perpetual holding pattern, you know, in the hope that they may eventually be able to return so they don't put down roots, but they they do have to have a life. And you made reference to, you know, the fact that there are shops, there are businesses, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure there are barbers and other people like that who, who operate here uh, in these camps. I mean, these people need those kinds of services and they spontaneously arise. This is not the sort of thing that UNHCR organizes, by the way. And um, but it does make it possible. But <clears throat> there are a whole series of other really, really difficult issues. Um, refugee camps uh, are see very high levels of gender-based violence. Partly that's born of the trauma that creates the refugee situation in the first place, and it's born of the frustration of the populations, and uh, it's born of the vulnerability of the women who are still uh, in those contexts, uh, the ones who are expected to go and fetch water, expected to go and find wood for fire, for, for cooking food and things like that. They're, and so if these camps are not very, very well managed and extremely carefully laid out and so on and so forth, <clears throat> you have a whole series of problems like that arising. And again, it, it comes back to this vexing difficulty of just not having enough money to meet to meet the needs. The estimates to run these camps are, are based on some pretty sound I'm and some sorry. pretty careful uh, uh, estimates of, you know, how much food a family of such size will need, uh, what's required in order to provide water and sanitation facilities. And the other element is protection, because mm-hmm. like any in, in any urban center, you're going to get antisocial elements, and you have to protect the population from, from that as well. That's over and above the, the, the issue of, you know, al-Shabaab and, and that kind of, and that kind of uh, uh, mayhem. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think one of the complications to this is that the longer a refugee camp is in the area, the more it ingratiates itself in the broader community. Like you were talking about before, we have uh, the Dadaab camp providing some of the best education in the region. It might. It might. For for sure. (laughs) It might. Yeah. But it also provides uh, employment opportunities, you know, people who uh, truck drivers um, who are bringing supplies in from from Mombasa, from the coast, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, people who are providing other forms of services. These are jobs for Kenyans. This is uh, not an insignificant factor. The northeast uh, uh, area of, of Kenya is uh, semi-arid, semi-desert at the best of times. And now under the current conditions with drought and so on, and, and uh, you know, so, so normal uh, uh, occupations uh, um, uh, are just, are just uh, those opportunities are just vanishing. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so the, the employment opportunities offered by UNHCR 
to, to, to provide services, to provide goods, and so on and so forth in the camps is hugely important. Mm -hmm. If that gets cut off, it will create a, an economic shock in, in, in that region. Yeah, certainly. I think it might almost create a vacuum of some kind, economic, political, in the region. But uh, to shift gears a little bit, so in May 2016, the first ever World Humanitarian Summit took place in Turkey. Now, the summit addressed a new global approach to managing forced displacement, and the upcoming high-level meeting on migration and refugees planned for September 2016 provides some hope that action items developed at the summit will be realized. So what can the international community do to better share the responsibility of protecting and providing for refugees? Woo, how long have we gone? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is a big, big question. Um, well, I have to come back to, 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 to my basic point about the, the, how crucial it is to find political solutions mm -hmm. to the situations that create uh, refugee movements, create internally displaced movements of populations. In your introduction, you talked about the numbers of IDPs um, in the world, and it exceeds the number of refugees. Mm -hmm. But of course, they don't, these people don't qualify as refugees because they haven't crossed a national border. They're still staying within their country. This is true in S Syria. It's true in places like Sudan. Uh, it's probably true in Somalia, except that we have so little real good, credible information about Somalia because of the, the, uh, the very uh, unstable situation in that country. And so uh, we have to deal with those with those factors, mm -hmm. what are the, you know, we have to come to grips with the drivers of the political instability, of the collapse of the rule of law in countries, and so on and so forth. That's really what, what what's important. And then there will inevitably be movements, mass movements of people, potentially more than we have seen in the past due to climate change and, yeah. the, and the consequent factors in, of, of environment. But... Um, but, but those potentially we can we can devise ways of dealing with. We can be prepared for those situations. We can invest in reducing the vulnerability of the populations who are likely to be affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's these political issues in the context of failed states and conflict and so on and so forth that uh, only political diplomatic solutions will 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 uh, will resolve. Uh, will will lessen the pressure. Will actually make it possible for the current uh, community of refugees to return, or and also to stop uh, future flows. So, I, I think Brexit shows that there seems to be a push in the international community these days towards isolationist or more isolationist politics. So, do you think, alternately, that more cooperation and collaboration among the international community might help solve some of these politically unstable challenges in some of these regions. Well, now you're going to add to political science mm -hmm. and uh, some wide-ranging questions. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I would link some of the, the factors that you cited to, to, to Brexit. Brexit is a very interestingly unique It is indeed uh, unique. event to Britain, uh, For sure. and some might say England, mm -hmm. uh, but um, there must be uh, more international coordination and cooperation. There's no question about it, and this is why um, it's so crucial uh, for countries to give the United Nations 
the tools mm-hmm. and the authority uh, to take action. Um, uh, individual countries, uh, you know, the United States can still do certain things uh, which are extremely important, extremely useful, but the United States, together with um, other partner countries who share the same level of concern about about refugee movements and 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 uh, and uh, internally displaced populations and so on and so forth, that is really how we're going to see some uh, some real movement and some and some real resolution and an improvement in the situation of of the people who are affected. Playing off of this, you keep mentioning the tools that we have, and mm-hmm. this question really is about. Are the tools that we have right now, are they necessary to deal with a 21st century refugee crisis? Because as most people who listen to this podcast will know, the the current UNHCR came out of the, the huge flow of refugees from Europe after World War II. Some say as many as 60 million. And so you have these new new laws created for this new reality. And But that was then, and this is now, that's... 70 or so years ago, and now we're seeing refugees net on a whole other scale or just in different, I guess, in di- different dimensions because we didn't have a dadab back then, or at least from what I know. No. Are the current laws enough to handle what we have in terms of the refugee crisis, or w- does there need to be um, a little bit of updating or uh, an overhaul? Mm-hmm. Well, you keep using the term laws, and they're actually not laws. They are conventions. Okay. And countries that sign on to these conventions, the, the refugee conventions, do so of their own volition. So uh, there's no compulsion, although it is a pretty decent list. It's, uh, if I remember correctly, about 147 countries that have signed on to the UN uh, conventions on, on refugees. Um, the important thing is, in fact, compliance. Um, and uh, recognizing that uh, as refugees have entitlements, uh, they, have, they, they, they deserve to be treated with dignity, they deserve a certain, a certain level uh, of support um, until they feel that it is safe, the, the refugees feel that it is safe for them to return to their country of origin. We have to make all of that work better, and it hasn't in the past mm-hmm. it it is uh, we have had cases where there have been uh, si- significant uh, you know shortfalls in the kinds of of support that uh, that refugees have have received and uh, in some cases have been have been turned back it's also um, in the context of of the kind of situation that has arisen in western europe which is not ar- arisen suddenly this has been building for some time there is a tendency on the part of Perhaps some uh, some observers, some reporters, to suggest uh, that this is a, a huge crisis that came out of nowhere, and they have conflated the situation of refugees who have who have very genuine reasons for leaving their countries, associated with persecution, associated with real threats to their life and, and well-being, with economic migrants, people who are leaving their home countries because they want and they hope to uh, achieve a better economic status in another country. And in the case of Western Europe, it happens to be there. And so that's why you're seeing these extraordinary movements of, of people across the Mediterranean um, and, and these very sad, uh, absolutely tragic situations of these, these um, uh, people smugglers who 
cram hundreds of individuals into a boat which gets, you know, 50 kilometers offshore and then promptly uh, uh, turns over and sinks and, and uh, lives are lost. The, the, many, many of those people are economic migrants. Um, and, and one understands their motivation as well. They are coming from countries where there are very p few opportunities uh, to, to earn a decent living. Uh, there, there is always the prospect that there is greater opportunity in a country like Germany, like Italy, like Spain, wherever. And so this is the driver. But they, those people are not refugees. They don't, if I may say, they don't have the kind of rights that refugees have. And the driving factors there are, are quite different. But in the case of Western Europe right now, because those numbers are also equally impressive, they're all sort of put together with refugees and, and uh, there's a, a great deal of sort of running around uh, chicken little style, you know, the sky is falling when it comes to this. The numbers are impressive. The numbers are really huge. And of course, the very, very uh, crucial situation in, in the Middle East, uh, driving many Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans uh, out of their countries and in the direction of of Western Europe, uh, just heightens the, the the perception that you know sort of you know, these are huge numbers of people who are just going to overwhelm us and are going to uh, take our jobs and so on and so forth. There's a great deal of very unfortunate rhetoric here, and it's it's, it's rather unpleasant. And what what it serves to do is conceal uh, the, the 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 absence of action to deal with one one issue or another. You know what are, what are the drivers of economic migration? underdevelopment. What are the drivers of refugee movement? Persecution. That's great. And thank you for making the distinction and for pointing out my error in saying law versus convention. I appreciate that. Um, I just have one last question. Um, so we're going to go from a very macro to a little more of a micro. And I, I'm curious to understand the impact of closing the, the Dadaab camp and other smaller, like similar but smaller camps in the region to local Kenyans who have found economic and other kind of benefits to the camp because they it's it's in a very poor area of Kenya and they've found a way to make business with the refugees and it's been part of their lives and so a lot of native Kenyans are facing um, they could lose their jobs potentially if this camp closes because they get a lot of business from the people who live there so you're right they will lose it and um, it will be very unfortunate because in the, under the present circumstances, uh, there won't be any near-term alternatives for them. Um, and at a macro level, at a national level, uh, Kenya does benefit from the significant transfer of foreign exchange resources mm -hmm. into the country to support the work of UNHCR, the, uh, UNICEF, uh, the World Food Program. Uh, it's not only the materials that that are shipped into the country, but in fact, very substantial amounts of of, of uh, funds that are transferred in, and that uh, helps Kenya's uh, balance of payment situation and overall macroeconomic situation. So you're quite right. These are there's an interesting kind of dependency that's perhaps built up here, which is uh, kind of dangerous. Uh, if if you decide that at some point it's got to end, well. You've got to be thinking about the alternatives. How are you going to employ? Who knows how many it might be? It could be 50,000 uh, uh, Kenyans. Looking from a national standpoint, Dadaab Camp, Kukuma Camp, um, and other uh, settlements, uh, it could be 50,000. It could be 75,000 Kenyans. These are pretty decent jobs by Kenyan standards as well. No, you've made a very good point. Yeah. Well... 
I think as we've seen, it's not a not a crisis with an easy solution. And uh, I think in the next few decades, we're going to see the indirect and direct impacts of this rippling throughout the region, probably in ways that might be hard to measure and understand. We've talked only about the situation in, in East Africa, and it does, you know, help um, by, by the very starkness of it. It does help portray what a what a huge challenge this is, and what a very grave situation it is. But we mustn't forget that there are refugees in many other parts of the world. The Rohingya refugees in mm-hmm. in, in Burma and Myanmar, uh, Karen refugees from from Thailand, who who in their case have probably been out of their country for twenty or twenty five years. Uh, there are a number of situations like these that uh, qualify for to be labeled as forgotten crises. It's simply because they're smaller. Mm-hmm. They're, no, they're no less acute, but they're just smaller. We're, we're not talking hundreds of thousands of people, we're talking tens of thousands of people. Now that's still a significant number of people who are experiencing a great deal of hardship and persecution. And so coming back to your question, Josh, it's uh, you know how can the international system, one hopes under the leadership of the United Nations, Perhaps if the Security Council gets its act together, um, can uh, can can show more leadership, can can identify some of the political keys to to these situations and and help make it possible for the refugees to go home. Many of those people, while welcoming the opportunity to come to a country like Canada, in many respects, see it as an interim solution. Mm -hmm. They would really like to go home. Mm -hmm. They would really like to go home. And it's, uh, so we have to respect that. We have to, we have to acknowledge that that is a reality for those people's lives, including the Syrians who have come to Canada over the last number of months, uh, who've experienced huge, huge uh, challenges to get here and suffered terribly in many cases and lost relatives and so on. But in many respects, they would just like to go home. They would like to resume their lives. They would like to go back to what they have lost. Well, thank you very much. And that's all we have time for today. So I'd like to thank you again very sincerely for your insights into this uh, topic. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. A quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Emily Vallet-Watt, Christopher Brodkin, Mark Haken, our supervisor, Samantha Nicole, and our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Josh. And I'm Nicole. This is Policy Talks.